I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix reality competition, Squid Game, The Challenge. I need to make it through each day. Now I'm not worried about what's next, what's down the road. I'm worried about getting through every single day, one at a time. I'm here to win, and I'm here to take home that giant big-ass piggy bank. That's why I'm here. Today, we're talking to executive producer Stephen Yemo. It was the sleeper hit that became a cultural phenomenon. Squid Game was a fictional TV thriller in which people at the end of their ropes were invited to win a fortune playing simple children's games. The catch? The losers were eliminated in gruesome ways until a winner was determined. It became the most streamed show in Netflix history. But many fans asked themselves, how would I fare at Squid Game? Would I survive red light, green light? Capture all the marbles? Or would I choose wrong on the glass bridge? Now they have their chance to find out. In Squid Game The Challenge, 456 real players will enter the competition show in pursuit of a life-changing prize of $4.56 million. As they compete through a series of games inspired by the original series, plus surprising new additions, their strategies, alliances, and character will be put to the test while competitors are eliminated around them. They say they're games. (laughs) But they're not. Player 299, eliminated. And I'm joined now by executive producer Stephen Yemo. Stephen, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? I'm great because I just watched nine episodes of this series and I'm super excited to talk about it. So what was your first reaction when you heard the pitch? A squid game, but as a real competition series. Yeah, so there was some talk in the office that, you know, Netflix might be wanting this series to come out and we were going to potentially pitch for it. And you think, wow, that's 456 people. That's a huge prize fund. And that's something that's never been done before. And obviously we can't kill them. So how are we going to do that? Um, it's just the same questions that everybody else probably would have asked, really. But we were excited about the potential challenge and the opportunity that, you know, to make something really special and really unique, really. Yeah. So let's talk about Squid Game itself, because it was Netflix's 2021 Korean language thriller series. The premise was, as you said, 456 financially desperate people competing to win a fortune playing a series of kids games with the losers being killed in increasingly violent ways. It's the most watched show ever on Netflix with 1.6 billion hours watched in the first 26 days. Six Emmy Awards, One Golden Globe. So can you talk about the cultural impact of this? Like you knew you were stepping into something kind of big. Yeah, I mean, big, it doesn't really describe it, does it? It's huge. It's it's massive. It's the biggest thing ever on Netflix. And um, with that comes a big old pressure to when you're trying to replicate something that has been so successful. People loved it so much. It's that you get things that people watch, but then you get things that people love. So when you have something that people love, you have a responsibility to try. If you're going to try and emulate it anyway, you've got to keep faithful to what's happened before, but also try and give your version a bit of an identity itself, 
but you know keep the fans which you know were diehard fans from all those hours that I watched it that's not just everybody has a Netflix subscription watching it that's people that have watched it watching it again and again and again so we knew that the fans were diehard um so we wanted to try and keep them happy but also to potentially bring a new audience to the show as well well, the show also replicated a, you know, a reality game show. And it wasn't just the survival games. The show really drew out the drama of the contestants' backstories and emotional lives. And that really is an element that's important in a reality game show as well, right? Yeah. No reality show for me has done well without good characters. The game can be big and exciting, but unless you have good characters to follow, there's, there's no show there. Um, so that was a big part of what we did. We tried, we knew that we had to work harder to find good characters because the characters that the scripted show had were so well developed. They were so well thought of because they had that sort of luxury of being able to write perfect stories for them. We didn't have that opportunity. So we had to work hard to try and find a mix of people that would potentially give us interesting stories while they lived through our squid game world. And I think we've managed to achieve that with some great characters who you love, some who you don't love, um, but they help tell the story of any great story and any great reality show. I think it's fair to say to viewers, I mean, w w I think people who are listening to this have probably watched it, but like you can't get too attached to people on this on this particular show. No, but you I, can't. I do want <laughs> but that's the best of all the shows, right? Exactly. Exactly. I, I do want to talk about casting, though, because most reality shows have a cast of maybe a dozen people, maybe 20 at the start. Uh, we figure out who's the hero, who's the villain, who's the backstabber. You have 40 times the number of people on day one. So how did you select, you know, who to put the spotlight on early on? Or did you decide that later in the edit? There was a bit of both, if I'm honest with you. I've worked on reality shows for 20 years and you, like you say, 20 people is a big cost. But when you're dealing with 456, it's enormous. It's huge. So we had to, the casting process was, you know, people applying, speaking to casting producers, and then those casting producers would sort of sub down those initial entries and then submit tapes to us. And we'd sort of pick people who we think could potentially work on the show. And then as you're doing, you're watching like 50, 60 tapes a week for like 18 weeks. So we watched over a thousand casting tapes. That's just the execs. There was many times that more that went through the producers as well. So lots of people to see. And you're just trying to find interesting nuggets within each person and something that you can hold on to as a viewer. And you don't, you know, you just need something to hold on to to go, you know, if we get, if that person gets down to the last few people, am I going to be interested in watching them? And that's kind of how we had to approach the casting of this. And I think by and large, we managed to find a really good cast and we managed, we ended up with interesting people towards the end of the show, as I'm sure your listeners would have seen. So Squid Game also had these very distinctive visuals, pastel colors, the green number tracksuits, the dormitory, the guards with the black masks. How immersive did you want the experience to be for the contestants? I mean, it's obviously immersive for the viewers, but the contestants themselves. That was really important. We always talked about this show feeling experiential as well. We wanted everyone that was in it to feel like they were in a world, in the world of Squid Game. It, you weren't just coming in to sort of play games. You wanted to feel the because when you watch that drama, it's tense, right? Living in that dorm is tense. Living on those big bunks is tense. Seeing less bunks going into the dorm every time you come from a game gives you an, a feeling because you know you're getting closer to the money. We wanted it to feel like an experience as much as it, and an immersive experience as much as it was just a spectacle as well. Having people go through the experience of, you know, 
not suffering us essentially, but it being tough. It's, it's not easy to, it can't be easy to win four and a half million dollars. So we wanted people to feel the weight of, you know, that world. And I think the guards being present helped that. The type of food that we gave them helped that. The bunks, this, all the conditions made it feel like you were in a thing. You weren't just popping along to an amusement park. You were popping along to a real world that you're in. Right. And there's a sense of dread, too, if they had watched the yeah, show. But absolutely. I'm guessing that you didn't consider uh, organ harvesting and eyes wide shut orgy scenes for these people, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, we just maybe series two. Yeah, <laughs> well, we didn't know. I think we had to try and keep it sensible as well. I think the best thing about reality shows is when you feel that they feel authentic. And we tried to do as much as we could to make it feel as authentic for the people that were playing the game and would feel authentic for the viewer itself. So in Squid Game The Challenge, we are immediately placed into the show's most iconic scene, the red light, green light game. And this is a spectacle with 456 contestants all trying to make it to the other side without being eliminated. Um, what went into shooting this particular sequence? A lot of time, a lot of effort. The drama is fantastic. It's absolutely wonderful. It's one of those shows that we're going to go, go down in history. But they had the advantage of that. It could be shot, it could be retaken. You knew exactly what was going to happen because it was all scripted and storyboarded. We had to sort of cover every eventuality and we knew that we had to have as much coverage as possible to tell the story of Red Light, Green Light. So we had a brilliant director, Dick and Ramsey, who made a camera plan and had 30 odd cameras following mm -hmm. the game. Um, and we sort of decided certain players that we were going to pick up at different spots there was a lot of adjudication and fairness issues that went into it. So there was a lot of talk about, you know, how are we going to make sure we catch all the key stories? And we knew that we wouldn't necessarily catch everything, but we had to try and be alive to catch as much as we possibly could. When you look back at it, the story of the girl who crouches down was one of those things that sort of fell into our lap. I'm literally in so much pain, but I cannot move. I cannot move. Keep focused. You can do this. Don't be a baby. You can't give up now. She crouches down and we notice that why she's crouching and she had to stay in that position for quite a long time. And we could see the dread in her as she's like, can I stay in this position for long enough in order to make it to the next round? And unfortunately she couldn't. And that was a real human story you felt for her, right? Because you knew that her journey had ended at that point. So you get sort of moments like that, that you, you know, there's, there's certain elements of luck, but if you're if you're covered well enough, you can pick up little stories like that. And obviously we had the great story with Trey and Leanne of not, of one of them potentially making it and one of them not. That was a great story that we managed to find on the day. But through great coverage, Arena was almost like covering a sports game and making yeah. sure you get as many cover, much, much coverage as you can. Then you can tell as many stories as you can in one big sequence. I thought about that too. I also thought about it like a nature documentary. It was yeah. just like trying to get all of it and be fair with the game. Like totally. the stakes are incredibly high. Yeah. I also have a question about the built environments of the game. The sets yeah. seem enormous. Are they actually enormous in real life? They were enormous. Yeah, they were huge. Cardington, where we shot Red Light, Green Light, is I think the biggest indoor space in Europe. And we needed wow. a big, huge space in order to fit that many people in, fit the amount of cameras that we needed and fit all the, you know, the subsidiary bits that we needed. We need to put space for people to just have their stuff, right? To process everybody, for everyone to take their picture before you get in the air, for the adjudication area. So we needed a big old space. 
and we needed to be, build big old walls in order for it to make it happen. It was incredible. When we first went down there, once the build had begun, we were all struck by how incredible and huge it looked. And we knew that that would get a reaction from the players. And you can see that on episode one, right? When they first come through those doors, they're like, oh my God, this is incredible. Holy crap. This place is nuts. This is incredible. You know, for the viewer, we know in the in the actual series that people get shot in that game. And I'm watching it and I'm like, well, they're obviously not going to shoot these people. What's going to happen? And then the first squib explodes in the contestant's shirt. And it appears as if they've been shot. And then we actually see them fall. What was that like seeing that happen in real life hundreds of times in that game? And what was it like for the contestants to have to do that? I'm just, I'm really curious about that. Yeah, I mean, the... The question of how, how are we going to kill them was one that we asked over and over and again. And we sort of thought, well, we need something visually impactful and we need something to sort of replicate what happened in the drama. And we fell on squibs, which is, you know, what they use in the drama it, because that's, you know, that's what they do on movies. They use squibs in order to replicate blood shots and use blood packs. But what is very different about squibs is that they are, you usually get one or two of them at a time. And you know exactly who's going to be squibbed at exactly what point, exactly which camera is going to pick them up. This whole system of squibbing for having to blood pack 456 people and remotely trigger off their squibs without them knowing had never been done before. We spoke to a lot mm. of special effects companies and they were like, no, we don't want to have anything to do with this because this is, <laughs> this is not possible. It's not going to happen. It's not going to work. And we worked really closely with a company who did a lot of research, a lot of development in order to make it happen. And it was really exciting to see it grow up. We went through lots of different, like the nozzles that you, that work, worked underneath their t-shirts to see what, how they would spray and what sort of effect it would give on their t-shirts. We went through 17 different versions of those in order to try and get the right one. We had different types of t-shirts. How would the t-shirts react to the squibs? Can they go through? We had to start the t-shirts. You had to put t-shirts in vinegar in order to make it work with the nozzle and the blood plugs that we had. So there was a lot of development and research which went into making those perfect. And I think they are really impactful, which we knew we ha they had to be. They had to be impactful for the players. And if they were impactful for the players, we knew they'd be impactful for the audience as well. Another thing that had a big impact on the players, I think, um, you know, it isn't just the six big events. Throughout the game, there are these smaller tests of skills and character. And I've watched a lot of reality shows. I think I've watched all the recent competition shows on Netflix in particular. And I understand why contestants have a hard time eliminating players that they know from small settings. But even from the very beginning, the crowd has this very negative reaction when they're asked to get rid of two or three people at one time. Well, how do you explain that? Because that, that's the whole point of this, right? Is getting rid of people. Absolutely. And even school class, people find it difficult. It's incredible the bond people make on reality shows. As I said, I've been doing this for a long time and it's incredible how quickly people get attached to people. Even though nine times out of 10 on reality shows, they're all playing for one winner. Nobody wants to necessarily do the dirty work to have there, especially when it's public and people potentially know that they did it. Damn, man. This is crazy. <sighs> this is not play nicey-nicey anymore. I'm here for my daughter. This shit getting cutthroat now. When we watched the scripted show, one of the scenes that really stuck out to us was the fight night when the contestants realised they had the opportunity to take out their fellow players. 
And we knew that we had to install that into our show at some point. They needed to take control and destiny over who were those final people left in the game. And that's why we introduced the pre-games and the test of character in order to give them the opportunity to say, am I going to do that thing? Can I take somebody out that I've been sharing this dormitory with? And, you know, some people did it with no problems and very cold and callously and bravely. Um, and some people found it more difficult. And I think that really helps the series take its shape and gives you really moments to sort of get to the edge of your seat and go, oh my God, are they going to do this? Or am I going to do that? As you could see from, you know, the first lineups that have been up. So do you have to do pacing with character development? Because your original cast has more than 450 people. And when we get to the final 20, I felt like there were still people I hadn't really met yet. So were you worried viewers would feel like they didn't have an attachment yet to people? Or do you think about pacing with character development as you're putting this whole thing together? I think the questions sort of lead on to each other, really. You do worry about it. And that means you have to pace it out, basically. I think you have, you do worry that we're going to get to episode eight and not everybody's going to be well known. And that's why we try to pick up those sort of processing room interviews, as you saw, so we can get some backstory. And we knew that we'd be able to drop those in so you could find out about people at various different parts of the show. It would have always, it was always going to be impossible to tell everyone's story. It's absolutely impossible to tell most people's story. But I do feel like even though it was a big cast, we did manage to make it feel quite small and you could feel for a lot of the characters because you knew quite a bit about them by where we dropped in their processing room interviews, where we saw them talking to other players in, in reality and stuff like that. So yeah, pacing is a really big part of it and we constantly would go back in the edit and go, okay, we need a story from this person to come a little bit early because we know that happened to them at that point and vice versa. But you also need to add some suspense for the audience. So sometimes we see those interviews like moments before the person is eliminated, right? So yes, you can't, yes. can't always be the same. It can't always be the same. And I think that's, you know, a lot of good shows. Like if you go back to your America's Got Talents and your X Factors, they would do that, right? They would tee you up with seeing you at somebody's home just before they go up and see the judges. And you wouldn't know if their performance would be brilliant or would be awful. So it's a convention that's used in reality shows for a long time and one that still works. I have a question about emotional stakes of the players and, and one in particular. In the honeycomb shape challenge, um, Spencer was under pressure to not stick his team with the umbrella shape. It really got to him and he really broke down. Um, can you tell me about this sequence? Yeah, again, that's one of the things that we tried to sort of wrong foot the cast in that sense. You know, when they went into that white room, they sort of had a clue that they'd be playing Dalgona, but they didn't know exactly how they'll be able to pick their shapes. Um, so we've devised that pregame and we thought, you know, the best way for these people to sort of work out who does what is for them to almost battle it out amongst each other. Um, and we saw eight people not being able to agree. And, you know, fair play to Spencer. He thought, I bet it's better to be in it rather than an almost make it than not stand a chance at all. It could have gone on forever and ever, but nobody picking. But he decided to, you know, take the risk. And he knew that he would be unpopular for it, but somebody had to do it at some point. So he did it. It was extraordinary watching it play out. Absolutely extraordinary. We thought maybe we'd lose one set of people. We didn't think it's a bit lose two. And his reaction to it, because he's got such an expressive face. He's such an expressive person, right? Hey, please stop crying, bro. Jesus Christ. You gotta stand there and endure it, bro. Stand there. He's gonna give you a hard time, but you gotta stand there and endure it. He will give in. He will give in. You don't give in. You've got it. You've got it, dude. You've got it. Praise. To 
see him do it. And you could see the weight of the weight of his decision really play out for him. And that's, again, you know, that's what you need when you tell stories, right? You need expression and you need to see that it means something to these people. It really did mean something to him and the people in his line. They were right. furious. Right. And you also see the people for whom it doesn't mean anything that they're just yeah. like, they, they have no empathy at all. They're just like, I'm not Absolutely. moving. <laughs> yeah. They're not moving. Like you see, you have a, you have a thought and you are, you sticking with that thought and how far are you going to take that stubbornness to go? This is my shape. I'm not going to let anybody change my mind on that shape. Yeah. This is an incredible like cadence of strategy too. Some people trying to hide who they are. Some people not being yeah. afraid of hiding who they are, but then also some of these games, is it just luck? You might just like, be eliminated. Yes, so totally. It's just incredible. <laughs> there are people who catch our attention right away um, in the cast. There's player 232. That's Rick. He's one of the older players in the game. Yeah. I'm curious if he reminded you of player 001 from Squid Game, the series. Yeah, I think there is there are similarities between them. And, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be foolish to pretend that like, when you're casting and you're seeing all these players, you see all these tapes that come through and you see people and go, oh, He's kind of like that person or he's going to like that person. So what was great about Squid Game is that it highlighted the importance of somebody a bit older being central to a cast with quite a lot of younger people. And that's something that reality shows tend to do quite well. When you throw in someone older, that's they give it a different flavour, a different perspective. And we cast quite a few people who are older and we were quite pleased that we're Firstly, that they applied and they wanted to be part of the game. And when they were in the game, they took quite prominent roles. That wasn't something that we manufactured. It just kind of happened that way. And Rick was, like, he was really lovable right from the start. Pretty much my goal to come here is, is to make a contribution. You know, not really planning on winning with, with the talent here, but I, I was always hoping if I could help one person win that, it's like, it's a win for me. Wouldn't that be and, incredible? Uh, may, maybe something like that will happen. You could see he's had a great face, right? He's very express, expressive face. And he made friends with lots of younger people and everyone seemed to love him in the dorm. So when he left the game, it had a big impact, right? Yeah. I mean, for me, I think the biggest impact players in the game are players 301 and 302, the mother-son team of Trey and Leanne. You cast them as a pair. So you obviously thought there would be an interesting story there or there could be an interesting story there, right? Did you expect it to be as interesting as it was when it played out for so long in the game? Absolutely not. No, <laughs> we would have loved it to have been, but if you had told us to write down what happens before the series started and it would have played out like that, it would have, no one would have believed you. They go, well, no, it's, it's unbelievable, but you know, it actually did happen that way. And to do great things, you need a bit of luck sometimes, right? And I think we did get a bit of fortune in terms of the way that red light, green light played out when the two of them were, Trey had crossed the finish line, but would Leanne make it? I did this because of her. I wanted her and I to have an experience and she might not make it. We, as you say, we cast them as a pair. They applied as a pair, so we cast them as a pair. So we knew that they were people of interest to us. So we were looking out for them as Red Light, Green Light was playing out. And you could see that Trey was further along and then Leanne was a bit further behind. And it was, it was, you know, everyone was tense when we were watching it right live. It was like, is she gonna make it? Is he gonna, you could see Trey getting really upset is he going to make it? Is she going to make it? And it was brilliant. And so we knew that we, that was a story that we were going to follow in through the dorms. And they were great characters. They got on well with everyone. They became known as mother son to the rest of the players. And that singles them out straight away, right? You know, they played together a lot of the time. And when they were together for the Marbles game, that was a big moment. We knew that was going to be a big moment where they would potentially have to eliminate one of each other. 
No, it was huge. You know, when they sat down together for the picnic and, you know, they, we knew that they would have to play against each other for marbles. We knew this was going to be a big, impactful moment. That was one of the most shocking turns in the series. You know, the players think they're going to be treated to this picnic only to learn they've been selected to play with their partner. And that worked very well dramatically in the original show. So did you expect, though, to get the amount of emotion that you got from all of these different marble games? Because there were people crying. There were people uh, having these horrendous disagreements. But the level of heightened emotion during these games, really, like there are people running out the clock all the way to the end. It was really, really high drama. It was. It was incredible. And, you know, that's one of the, the great, well, the challenges of replicating the drama was that we knew Marbles was highly supercharged in the drama. So how are we going to get that to work in our unscripted version? From my sort of experience of reality TV, I know food is a big thing for players when they are hungry, their decisions get a little bit clouded. And so we knew if we, our best chance of getting emotion from marbles was to sort of hide it to all intents and purposes under the guise of food. So we knew that if we offered them a treat and of nice food, they would probably put their guard down a little bit and pair up with the people that they cared about. Because it wouldn't have worked if they were all people that they didn't care about. We knew that we had to get some of those friendship stories into marbles. And obviously I didn't want to come into the show knowing that if you were paired up at any point in the white room, that would you know, have been bad news for you. So we had, knew we had to do it beforehand. And, you know, that was really tense for us watching it in the control room going, are they going to pair up together? Are they going to twig to this? Dramatically for the good of the series, they didn't twig. And we had an amazing episode. Marbles is probably one of my favorite episodes of the whole series because it's so much happens in that space and sort of watching it all unfold was it was, was incredible. So, so much in that episode actually has nothing to do with the actual games of marbles. You know, I think at one point, Tim accuses Jackie of trying to use her disability to trick him. Players 399 and 065 are both eliminated because they refuse to compromise. And of course, mother and son have to play to the figurative death. That's going to be really proud of me. <laughs> It really is. I told you to play honorably, and you have every step of the way. I'm so glad I played with you. <laughs> Me too. Goodbye. Which of those matchups, which of those interactions was most powerful to you? God, that's a good question. They were all brilliant. I think... I was quite surprised that the players, I think 393 and 065, letting the clock run down in the way that they did. It was a proper standoff between them. They were not budging. And, it you know, was him. It was him. Yeah, Come well, on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the time is up. I think it's fair if I, if I went after this. No, I absolutely disagree. Absolutely. We have to make a decision or, we, or we're both eliminated. I'm not, I'm not just going to give you the win. He was very, very steadfast in his opinion. And, you know, through that three world, she did try to compromise and she did compromise in the end. But he was, I don't know if he came into the game feeling suspicious of her or what, but he was very, very much not willing to budge. I suppose the most surprising might have been Tim and Jackie because we didn't see that coming. There was nothing prior to that that's just, that we sort of thought that this could come from 
either of those players. You saved this for this moment. I know, I know you're Tim, getting... that's really icky. You started talking to me and you just went like that automatically. I was like, oh, she signs. At no point have you done that. No, you've, you've done that for this moment. Tim, you're, you're ruining yourself here. But, you know, also, you can understand the stakes are so high, right? Everyone trying yeah. to get an advantage can just put you back up in a, in a way that, you know, you don't quite expect. And that certainly happened with that game. I just want to give Jackie a nod. I think she handled that situation quite well, in she my opinion. Did. She very did. <laughs> there were a couple of people that got under my skin as being just complicated people. Um, there was number 432 Brighton, who comes off, I think, alternately as both, you know, a jock, a little bit of like a, a bully, and also as an emerging leader. There was Lorenzo, number 161, who was rude and stole food, but also kind of very interesting in his interviews. There was number 330, Dr. V, who tried to get everyone to meditate. I don't know what I would do in that situation. Um, is it important to give the audience people either to root against or to have these complicated feelings about when you're putting together a show like this? Absolutely crucial. That was the thing that we knew we had to do. Like every great TV series that I've ever seen has that. You have people that you root for, people that you love, people that you love to hate, whether it be The Mole, whether it be Game of Thrones, whether it be The Wire, every show that I've ever loved has always had heroes that you love or hate. Squid Game had it as well, right? The original, you had players that you really rooted for and players that you were totally sure about. And we needed to make sure that happened in our series. And that's, that's one of the advantages of having such a big cast. You know that you can watch a tape and go, oh, that person could potentially be that, that person could potentially be that. But they, they have to sort of all work together and the, sort of car, the stars have to align in order for that to really play out. But we're fortunate enough that it does. You know, someone like Brighton, really, on the face of it, quite an annoying guy, right? Look, let me tell you something. Come here. Let me tell you something. No, I'm not touching you. Don't touch me. I'm not touching you. If you call me a frat boy again, I won't put my hands on you because I won't. All right. But when we get off this bitch, I might. Okay. All right, frat boy. Cool. Uh, jockey feel like but then you know you speak to him and you hear that his mum's his best friend and he has trust issues and he has a really nice chat with Leanne where he's like the politest boy ever and you think oh maybe you're quite cool um so people are people are complicated and shows have to reflect that and I think we did that pretty well and our cast did that they showed the different sides of humanity and that's what the scripted drama did as well so you did do your best to replicate those Squid Game events. And in the original show, the gangster gets tipped off that the next game is going to be a tug of war. So he assembles this team of the strongest men. And Brighton actually does that same thing, only to find out that it's a different game, this Warships game. Tell me about your decision to do that bait and switch. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, we knew that everybody coming into this game, anyone applying to this would have seen the drama, would have felt they knew exactly what was coming. And... We knew that that wouldn't necessarily be an interesting watch if we just copied everything from the drama beat by beat and there was no twists and turns. Because the great thing about when you watch the drama is that there's twists and turns, right? You go, oh, I didn't see that coming. So we knew that we had to sort of stay faithful to the drama, but give those twists and turns and add some alternative storylines to our version of the show. And we knew that everybody would try and get strong teams together for tug of war. That was the inevitable thing. Everyone would be sussing each other up. There was, there was so much talk about it. As soon as they got into the dorm and they saw the decals and they saw the tug of war one there, they were thinking, oh, who's going to be on my team for tug of war? Who are the big guys that I can get? So we thought that was a quite good place to potentially wrong foot them and add a bit of a 
sort of a more of a loving playing field as well, right? Because Tug of the War was kind of the only game in the series which wasn't down to luck. That was about brute strength. And we thought if we eliminate that element of, you know, gameplay, maybe it might act as a bit of a leveler, maybe make our series a bit fairer. So that's why we decided to go with warships rather than tug of war. And it did throw them. Their, their reactions when they went into that arena and saw that they wasn't tug of war was there were there was something. So I think what viewers will talk about the most is what happened at the glass bridge. I can't stop thinking about it. Um, I think some people, their biggest takeaway will be that the competitors chose to share the risk and not doom necessarily those at the front of the line. And other people's takeaway will that they saw this one act of selfishness with real consequences in that scene. Um, what do you think the biggest takeaway was from the whole glass bridge test for these competitors? God, <laughs> make sure everybody's aligned on the plan before you say that the plan's <laughs> going to happen. <laughs> you know, it, it, it was clear that, you know, the majority of the group were happy with the plan, but not everybody was. And, you know, you talk about Ashley and she was, she'll obviously be highlighted as a person that didn't want to go with the plan. However, she wasn't the only one, you know, you, you see in the show, Siobhan, when they talk about plan, she was like, oh, I'm not really sure about the plan. And she wasn't really sure where to get through it. But, you know, it played out for Ashley. She's still not passing. She's not going to jump up. I guess not. Mandy's welcome to overtake. I don't mean to call shots for anyone, but I think it's fair if someone else steps up. Should you talk it? It's one of those moments where they decided to game it, basically. They decided to game the way that they approached that particular game and make it as fair as they possibly could, which, you know, is, is absolutely admirable. But at the same time, you are, you are playing for yourself. Only one person can take that money home. So I can understand why you might not want to play the game the way the rest of the group wants to. But that does have consequences and that does leave people having an opinion of you. And I think that's what Ashley found out. And we saw that later on in the episode. So should view, should viewers forgive you for getting rid of these characters that like we've been watching and fallen in love with? I don't think they people say that they want to see people through the end, but you don't. Every best, <laughs> All the best shows don't. They don't do that, right? Like Game of Thrones was the, the perfect example. You fell in love with all those characters and then they were callously just get rid of them and other shows have done that as well and I think that's they make the, for the most dramatic shows and that's what we wanted to do catch you unsuspectingly and I think that makes the best types of shows So I have to ask you this final question because um, for the characters in the original show, you know, financial need was a big motivator. And by any game show standard, you have a huge grand prize in this game, $4.56 million. You're about to change someone's life forever in this game and bring a bunch of other people really close to changing their lives. What is that like? I mean, it's something that we think about all the time, like being so close to anything is really hard, right? But being so close to that amount of money is, I mean, I can't imagine it because I haven't been through it, but everybody knew what they were getting into prior to coming into this show. And so we spoke to everybody when we were doing the casting process and you know, doing our diligence processes said, you know, you could come very close, but not be the winner of the show. We knew ultimately there was only going to be one winner. So we made everyone quite aware of what would happen and, you know, how close they could get. And they knew that this could be a really, you know, I don't want to say sad, but I want to say, you know, a very what could have been story for 
some of them. And it is a what could have been story. I think even if you get down to the final 20, you'll feel like, oh my God, I could have been so close to winning that money. Um, so we just have to make it really clear to people before they come into the game. And, you know, we do lots of sort of psychological tests with people to make sure that they're robust enough to deal with that sort of so cl- getting so close to something but not actually managing to win it. But, it, you know, it's really hard. It's really hard. You make somebody's life and change it immeasurably, but also you let somebody down, which is a shed. Well, the first nine episodes of Squid Game, The Challenge, are out now on Netflix with the season finale coming on December 6th. I know what I am doing like as soon as I wake up that day. Stephen Yemo, thank you so much for joining me on You Can't Make It Up to talk about the series. It is just fantastic. Thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for your love for the series. Appreciate it. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Stephen Yemo. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On!, Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review the show and share it with your friends. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.